before we uh, we get into it, let me do my my formal introduction. Um, thank you to those okay. who have joined us so far. Um, I hope we have some more people uh, trickling in um, later on, and we definitely will have many more listens um, as this gets kind of uh, recorded and hosted here. Um, for those who don't know, my name is Jake Fisher. Um, and your reporter at Bleacher Report, and uh, very pleased to be joined by Noah Green, man of many titles and a long resume, um, but also the former Minnesota Timberwolves assistant GM, and I definitely wanted to pick Noah's brain about the Wolves coming up tonight, but a host of other NBA world topics if he's so inclined. Uh, thank you for joining me, man. Are, are you up in, in Minneapolis right now? I am in Minneapolis. I actually just got back from uh, Miami. I was down in Miami for a couple of days and uh, got back into Minneapolis this morning. Um, I don't want to give you a bit of homework here, but can we get a little bit of like a stump speech, a quick uh, brush through, if you will, of your NBA background here? Uh, sure. Um Started my NBA career in the mid-90s at the league office in the legal department. Um, I was on the basketball operations side, um, helping teams interpret the collective bargaining agreement. I was involved in collective bargaining agreement, had a few other tasks, um, and then went to Vancouver, British Columbia in 95 when the NBA expanded to Canada and spent five years working for the Vancouver Grizzlies. So Stu Jackson was the general manager. I was assistant general manager. Uh, we entered the league at the same time as the Raptors. Um, the Grizzlies ultimately moved to Memphis. And so ironically enough, my two former NBA employers are, employers are facing off tonight, um, <laughs> but moved to Memphis and have been in Memphis since I think 2001. So, um, They've they've been in uh, they've been in in Memphis much longer they were in, than they were in Vancouver, but um, they had a a storied past in Vancouver. We drafted uh, with our first draft, uh, Big Country Bryant Reeves, um, Sharif Abdurrahim the next year, um, and uh, although we didn't win many games, we we left a lasting impression. So. Yeah, it was a it was a great experience. <laughs> and then after after that, I went and I worked with Aaron Goodwin, uh, and we represented at, at various times Kevin Durant and LeBron James and Demar Derozan, Damian Lillard, Jamal Crawford, and did that for fifteen years. And then moved to Minneapolis in twenty sixteen. Worked with Tom Thibodeau uh, in Minneapolis for the Timberwolves, and then. Uh, Left the Wolves in 2020, I believe, and, and actually recently launched a new agency with Mike Miller there called you know. Lift well, I appreciate, I mean, So that's what I've been doing lately. Yeah. For sure. I mean, I knew I knew I wouldn't have been able to sum it up better than you did yourself. So I appreciate that. Um, and obviously for, <laughs> not a problem. For anyone, for anyone who's not familiar with your background, I mean, clearly you've seen the industry from, from all facets and why you're – that's why, in addition to being, from my experience, a generally nice guy, one of the people I've enjoyed picking the brains of around the league the last couple of years Thank the you. most. Um, and, I mean, I guess, honestly, to kind of work chronologically, but to bring it back to, to present-day topics, because um, I, I, I was reading a story in True Hoop, um, Henry Abbott's Substack with David Thorpe in my email uh, this morning, and if there's some like loud, if you guys can hear that loud hammering in the background, I apologize. Um, there's been the apartment below mine has been undergoing renovations all day. Um, if you can't hear it, then forget I said anything. Um, but so, so David Thorpe's article or Henry Abbott's article today was about kind of the, the white whale of expansion that everyone in the league has kind of been murmuring about quietly. Um, you know, there's talk about Seattle and Las Vegas primarily. Um, I mean, Bill Simmons definitely kind of sounded an alarm about the whole uh, Celtics ownership group and that whole soccer world that they're in and that 
collection of, of, of money and personality and celebrity uh, coming to Vegas and that being something that potentially LeBron and Clutch Sports are, are interested in. Seattle, we all know the story about OKC um, emerging from the ashes of the Supersonics. I mean, I, I've heard stuff about Vancouver over the years, and obviously Kansas City has a stadium. Um, it's just, or, or Louisville has a stadium, and Kansas City wants to be in the mix. What's kind of your general thoughts and understanding of, of, of where these power-playing conversations are right now? Sure. Um, well, I think the league will ultimately expand. You know, for a number of years, there has been a belief that there are not enough quality players uh, to uh-huh. sufficiently stock uh, 32 teams. Um, but I think we've gotten to a point where, um, A, the expansion fee is significant enough and the demand is enough, and not, not the demand rules the day. But um, I think with the level of interest, um, the potential size of the expansion fee, and two markets, quite frankly, that are clamoring for teams uh, in Las Vegas and Seattle. Um, and I, I, well, I didn't read the entire article. I skimmed it. And, you know, Oakview Partners, which is run by the Licky Brothers um, and has the Kraken in Seattle, their building is NBA ready. And I think they um, feel pretty good about the possibility of, of getting an NBA team to partner with their hockey team and then Las Vegas um, which has seen an influx of professional teams with the Knights, the Raiders, uh, potential Oakland A's moving there and I believe uh, an MLS team on on the drawing board so I mean I think the NBA may be a little bit late to that party but I think there will be a a team in there in that market and Bill Simmons had indicated that LeBron through Fenway sports um, might get the rights to that team. Um, and so he owns a part of Fenway sports, which owns Liverpool and the Boston Red Sox. And they are rumored to want to purchase an NBA team. So I think there's a lot of activity in that space and a lot of interest Um in fact, the head of the Players Association came out recently in support of expansion. Of course, the 34 new jobs obviously is significant to the Players Association, the additional revenue. Mm-hmm. You know, and, the, and, and for the owners, while the, while the um, expansion fee is significant and does not have to be shared with the players at this point, they are giving up a portion of their revenues in perpetuity. Um, so what, what the expansion fee buys the new owners is a percentage of league-wide revenues in perpetuity. So that is not undertaken like, lightly. Um, but especially I, with, I, with I, the numbers, not to interrupt you, but especially with the numbers that are being thrown out there for the potential new TV deals with Amazon and other yes. potential streaming giants coming in with the fall. Yes. yes, and that's why many think it will be after that deal is done. I would point out that there are reports that they they are well on their way to securing a new broadcast deal. Those things are often done uh, very quietly, particularly as they negotiate with current partners. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if an announcement on that is made soon. And I would also add that um, with the new head of the Players Association in place, and while I haven't seen any confirmation this, of this, I would suspect that the Players Association and the League have at least quietly begun uh, negotiations on a new collective bargaining agreement. And I think those are because the collective bargaining agreement with respect to distribution of players from existing teams to the expansion teams and the draft and other things that will have to be collectively bargained for, I think um, one of the things we'll see is expansion and draft. No, I do still have you. Two teams. Can you hear me? Sorry, you faded out there for the last I'm sorry. seconds. I'm I said sorry. I do think that once That's those okay. dominoes are in place, we had two new teams. I, I don't think they'll go to 34 anytime soon. I don't think markets like 
Vancouver, which I'm very familiar with, or Kansas City, um, are likely expansion candidates. Um, you know, there's been talk of of relocation. Um, you okay. know, when Mr. Uh, Laurie and um, A Rod were purchasing the Timberwolves, there was a lot of talk about them wanting to move the team to another market. Um, that yes. has died down. Obviously, they've been successful and they have, uh, you know, attendance has been good here the second half of the season. But at some point, there will become there will be a discussion about a new building in Minnesota. And I think that the result of those discussions will lead to um, the potential of that team moving. And I also think New Orleans is a is a is a market where um, the team has a bottom five building. Um, and that probably needs to be addressed at some point. And that team could be a, a relocation candidate at some point. I think bottom five might be uh, charitable of a description of the smoothie thing. So not to be, uh... <laughs> okay. <laughs> bottom two? Not maybe. It may, I mean, it may I, even bottom I've, one. I've only, I've only been to about 11 of the arenas, but I can't imagine – I mean, I, I've traversed mid-major college stadiums back when I was at Northeastern and working at the radio station for the school mm-hmm. and traveling to call those games. Um, I've been to a number of other, you know, smaller arenas for conference tournaments and what sure. have you. Smoothie King is, I mean, I, I can't imagine there's another facility in the league that's on par with them in terms of being at the bottom of the totem pole, just in terms of infrastructure yes. New tech location I mean, like stuff. Yes, yeah, fan stuff, experience. I mean, it's, it's literally. Yeah, I mean, I, and I love New Orleans. I I've spent yeah. a lot of time. And I think the league likes having a team there. It does. It's it's a city that whenever they are playoff events or when All Star has been there, everyone on the league enjoys going. Um, there's, I mean, a lot of history in that city with. Dating back to uh, Pistol Pete and um, before the Jazz ultimately mm-hmm. left for Salt Lake. Um, but, yeah, it, it's the, the discussion of um, the Pelicans' potential to, to be moved at some point down the line, especially being that um, owner, ownership there has always been more, let's say, focused on the Saints. Yes. And the yes. the Pelican. I mean, New Orleans is cl- is clearly a, a football town. I mean, it's you could say this. I mean, I'm from Philly originally. Like Philly is a football town for sure, but mm-hmm. there's also a pretty big diet um, and appetite for yes. basketball. I mean, you just even in the playing tournament saw a lot of empty seats, unfortunately, in Smoothie King. So I am very curious yep. as yep. that series shifts back to. New Orleans, and now with this Devin Booker injury, like people are starting to talk about this as potentially being more of a competitive series. I'm curious to see what the attendance numbers are and what it looks like on TV. Yes, yes, that, that's an excellent point. And, and as you know, the uh, requests for new arenas, often in, in sports in general, often lead to threats of relocation. But in a place like New Orleans, it could actually. Um, I think happened there. And, um, you know, I think that there's some markets you mentioned Vancouver where I obviously live for a long period of time. Um, Louisville is a market that, uh, has an NBA ready building as well that, um, some people think could support an NBA team. Um, so, um, KFC Yum Center. Taking the KFC Yum Center. Yes. I mean, Seattle and, (laughs) You know, Seattle and Las Vegas will be taken out of the conversation once they get expansion teams for relocation. But, you know, I think uh, the popularity of NBA basketball is extremely high right now. And so I wouldn't be surprised to see some other markets emerge as potential candidates, if not for future expansion, certainly for relocation. Yeah, it will be interesting to that point if, if Seattle gets a team. And and I do want to be clear in the spirit of the title of the show um, that we're, we're talking about this happening in the next couple of years. I, I think and I wrote today at Bleach Report about the increasing conversation about Portland being up for sale in the very near future. Mm-hmm. People I've talked to around the league are pointing to that 
type of transaction yep. unfolding somewhere yep. in the next And there's an arena issue months. there as well. Yeah. yeah, and there's an arena issue there as well as they renegotiate their lease with the city. I suspect that will get done before the team is sold, but, you know, that just adds another layer of complication. Yeah, um, so th- that that schedule, that scale, whatever, that will happen very far quicker than any expansion, t- to my understanding. I, I do I do think we're looking at yeah. 2025, 2026, that type of – and which is, which is why I think – when the league gets questions about this at either Adam Silver's press conference or when people like myself call up and ask for uh, comment, you know, they have no comment. They're not close to it, blah, blah, blah. Cause there are in, in theory in any official capacity, yeah. but just like with the Portland stuff to the answer 99s asking in the comments about who's buying the team. I mean, these rumblings are out there. And like you mentioned, Noah, about the, the, um, the television deals, a lot of these co- quiet conversations start to happen years in advance. I mean, I'm here in yes. New York, right well, over the water well, keep from in mind, New Jersey. Too, where... when you... you go, you go. Uh, keep in mind, when you're negotiating a new television deal, adding two new markets is not insignificant. Um, and so there will certainly be, I would assume, some language in those new agreements about the impact of adding two new teams. Yes. And as I was about to kind of pivot with, um, you know, like this is a, this might sound like a very apples to oranges comparison, but in New Jersey, either today or yesterday was the first day um, that in the state of New Jersey, uh, you could sell or or, or venues could sell um, marijuana for recreational purposes. But there's only like 13 licenses for dispensaries in all of New Jersey. Like for people who were looking at that, market as a potential investment opportunity, you know, six months ago, they were three years too late. Like those licenses were being fought over and haggled with and, you know, strings being pulled behind the scenes for, you know, a half a decade. That's the same type of stuff that, that operates behind the scenes when it comes to owning and taking over a franchise. Um, uh, With the Portland thing, the only real insight I have into that, that I can say confidently publicly is that you look at the, the, the new ownership in Minnesota with uh, Lori and A-Rod that you mentioned earlier, Noah. You look at what happened with Steve Ballmer and the Clippers. And while there is, while there is a lot of influx in, in venture capital money um, around the league, um, it, it, it's my understanding the NBA prefers to have any new governorship be more of a one- or two-person entity rather than these giant – 17 person collectives um so yep. but yep. but that might not be what they get they, they might not do the no. best offers, and keep so. in mind and keep in mind too not unlike the Denver Broncos situation my understanding is the situation in Portland is that the team is actually owned by Paul Allen's trust so mm-hmm. that means that the trustee has a fiduciary duty to sell to the highest bidder. So it makes it a little bit more complicated than the NBA saying, this is who we want to buy the team. And so it'll be interesting yes. to see how the situation in Denver is resolved. Um, and I think it will similarly be interesting to see what happens in Portland when the, when the trust goes to sell the trailblazers. And I mean, that's why I wanted to write a little bit why I did today about, I mean, it's to me for my objective chair, the blazes are, are much more appealing, uh, pricey, uh, asset when they're built around a global superstar like Damian Lillard. And obviously his status, um, with Portland has kind of been a question mark for the last you know, year or so almost. I mean, it's been certainly something that's been speculated about more so by people in the media like myself and people outside of the Portland Trailblazers who are hoping that he'll become available and eligible to be traded for. But, I mean, that conversation, those conversations were only happening because they were happening privately amongst people close and in and around Damian Lillard's camp, right? And with the pressure to potentially build a contender around him, what it is, I do, I am wondering, and I know people around the NBA are certainly wondering if that is going to 
apply more context to the moves the Blazers try to make to appease him and, and build a contender around him trying to keep up the overall value of the franchise. Yeah. Yeah, I would say um, that the demand for these scarce assets seems to be growing, not mm-hmm. shrinking. When I look at the bidders for the Denver Broncos, when I look at the bidders for Chelsea, when I um, hear about people interested in buying NBA teams um, and as private equity money comes in to ownership in baseball and hockey, MLS and the NBA, I think that um, the demand will be strong and that there will be multiple bidders. And as I said, because it's a trust, they will have a fiduciary duty to sell the, to the highest bidder. And I don't know how much those factors factor into the sale price. It'll be interesting to see. I understand what you're saying, but yeah. um, there are only so many teams that come up for sale. So if you want one, you may be better bid for this one and not wait. And being worried about having a superstar or the state of the franchise – may be irrelevant if you really want to own an NBA team. So, Yeah, it's a very fair counterpoint. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think the people who have raised that question look at it from the perspective of, I mean, in a, in a non-Damon Lillard future, what is the excitement about that franchise? Is it if you're paying a $2.5 billion amount or more, what is going to be the rate of return on that investment if you're at the bottom of the league in a, in a smaller market like Portland that doesn't necessarily have um, a, a, a star draw? I mean, like if, if you're buying OKC right now, for example, mm-hmm. and that's not to say that that's a pretty extreme example, right? They're obviously sure. in the throes of one of the more aggressive rebuilds the league's ever seen, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know if they, if they would carry the same value as, let's say, if the Minnesota Timberwolves became available, you know? Yeah, yeah. But again, there are some extremely wealthy individuals who, you know, Absolutely. Malton, who's bidding for the, who's bidding for the Broncos and, um, you know, lots of people we probably haven't even heard of who have the wherewithal to buy these teams and to fund losses for many, many years without batting an eye. So, um, it'll be interesting, not to say the least. But as I said, not many, uh, you know, we had um, the, the transaction here in Minnesota where A-Rod and Lori mm-hmm. actually bought 20% and will buy another 20%, I think, this summer and then another 20% the next summer. So it's a stage transaction. And then the transaction in Utah, which was done very quietly. Um, but there haven't been a lot of teams changing hands lately. So it's not like, you know... You can for sure wake up tomorrow and say, I'd like to buy a team. But because these teams have been held for a long time and some of the owners are getting older, um, you know, some people think owners are waiting till expansion so they get the expansion money in and then sell the team or waiting till the good broadcast deal gets done. And once they know the ramifications of that, they may look to sell. So it'll be interesting. But um the the pursuit of professional sports franchises and the value of teams continues to rise exponentially, which divide which and defies most uh, experts' estimates. Yes, for sure. And I, I think I could be wrong here, but from my armchair analysis, to me, that's a direct result of the fact that as we get into this deeper and deeper into the streaming era that we're in. There are very mm-hmm. few entities that actually have valuation in live and live TV and live advertising dollars mm-hmm. like sports does. Um, and that's just kind of been yes. something that's been this magical elixir for pro sports and probably will continue to be in all this. As Kind of lost you again there, what'd you say? I said, as David Stern used to say, it's the truest form of reality television. Yes. yes. Sports. I mean, yes. honestly, I'm kind of surprised the NBA hasn't done more of a pivot into stuff like hard knocks that the NFL has done. And like mm-hmm. uh, the NFL films and 
all those um, hot mic type things that they do, just being that, I mean, clearly the league has so driven by personality and individualism that these stars can have. I, I, it's been a bit yeah, of a surprise point. to me that they mm-hmm. haven't leaned as far in like that. Um, fair point. So to, let's, let's take it to Minnesota. Will, will you be at game three tonight or okay. are you going to be at home on take, taking it on the I will be at home. Yes, I'll be at home taking it in on the couch. It's, uh, I mean, the Wolves have had a great season. Hats off to Coach Bench. I think he's done a masterful job of um, turning that team into a winner. Um, And, I I mean, they have a chance to win this series. Uh, I mean, do I think it's likely? No, but I think that it will be competitive. Um, And if you told me they won it in seven games, I wouldn't be shocked. Yeah, it's been a pretty miraculous coaching job, in my opinion, being that there is a lot of talent on that roster, but Mm -hmm. not a lot of depth in terms of realized talent and consistent night-to-night production. And it was on full display against the Clippers in that elimination game where, I mean, obviously Cat was – a non-factor, maybe even a, a negative factor for Minnesota. And the yes. ability to kind of mix and match different lineups and pull D'Lo um, at times with the knowledge of where the TV timeouts were coming to get a little defensive juice on one possession here and there. Finch is – what he's done in, with the Timberwolves this season's kind of been overlooked by various other great coaching jobs in the league this season, but mm-hmm. it's right there in the, it's right there in the top tier of the league for, from at, yes. at least this and, campaign. And really done a great job of making Anthony Edwards much more efficient, um, mm-hmm. you know, getting him to understand that he is really hard to stop when he gets going downhill, going to the basket, and not to just – stand behind the three-point line and, and chuck up three-pointers, and he's become much more efficient, They're playing much better defense. I mean, it's been a, a, an impressive season all around. So you weren't there when they drafted Cat, correct? You came in the year after? That is correct. That is correct. So uh, for my – I came in right after they drafted Chris Dunn. Yes. Um, so from my reporting back when I was working on my book, that the top of the 2015 draft was definitely Cat all along. He was he was and and kind of similar to Embiid the year before in the 2014 class before he got hurt. Um, Cat kind of emerged around the turn of the calendar year when January arrived and Kentucky was the number one team in the country. He wasn't just this kind of jump shooter perimeter oriented big man that he was in high school and on the AAU circuit. He was taking all comers down on the block, and he kind of really cemented himself as being that number one pick. I know Flip Saunders at the time uh, mm-hmm. did a pretty good job of convincing the Lakers picking two and other teams below that they were truly considering Jalil Okafor. Um, but from my understanding, Cat was the guy all along. It's just been – Obviously, a pretty unique roller coaster building around him as a as a franchise centerpiece in the almost decade since. Um, is that from from your perspective? Like, is it the challenges of building around a big man generally um, in a today's NBA that's more perimeter oriented, or is is there more there about the defense and other, you know, I mean, a lot of people in the NBA were not very surprised um, with Cat's performance in the playing game, right? Where there's been questions about his toughness and ability to play through contact and all that type of stuff for a while. Yeah. I mean, it's been, it's been, he pointed out, I mean, lost you again over there. Soft again. Unique talent, and um, and I think anybody who's watched the team this year realizes that they struggle to rebound the ball still, in part, I think, because of the way Cat plays. Um, and so um, I think that they could still – there's still a lot of room for improvement on that team. Um, and that's what would give me hope uh, as a Timberwolves fan, that I don't think that they've come anywhere close to reaching their potential. No, definitely not. There's there's a lot of untapped room for growth there, especially being that 
they haven't really found a true frontcourt partner for Carl Anthony Towns. There's definitely been a lot of success with Jared Vanderbilt and kind of that smaller four switchable role that he plays in. But I know there's definitely mm-hmm. interest in using him as using Cat as more of a four and, and, and maybe have a five man alongside of him. I, they were definitely in the mix for Miles Turner conversations um, before mm-hmm. he ended up getting hurt at, at the deadline. And, and, and now he, Turner does seem to be pretty. Uh, entrenched in Indiana, but would have been to me would have been really interesting to see a guy like like Miles next to Cat, being that um, sure. you could have provided that that rim protection um, that's kind of been lacking a bit, yeah. a little bit of rebounding, and also whenever the, the Wolves would have potentially um, split them up, you know, set one to the bench, you could have ran the same type of sets offensively, being that they both do have that pick and pop ability and what have you. Um, so I am, mm-hmm. I am curious, you know, Sachin Gupta is in an interim GM position there and there's been plenty of talk around the league about the potential for, um, Minnesota's ownership group to, to bring someone in above him. But there's also a lot of talk around the league about how, um, I mean, Sachin is very respected, is just a very respected guy in terms of his knowledge of the CPA. Yeah and the ability to swing trades and to just kind of squeeze out every ounce of the salary cap. So I'm, I'm just generally curious to see what direction they do end up evolving the roster to your point. And I, I do wonder if, if how this playoff run goes will end up um, coloring what direction or that if they've already kind of had some of those mm-hmm. thoughts internally and they, they, they do know where they want to go. Yeah. I mean, I think they've got a pretty good idea. I mean, cats up for an extension, this summer, which, you know, I think he will get. It'll be interesting to see what they do with D'Lo. I mean, I think he would like to get an extension, um, but that may not be in the cards. And if he doesn't get extended, um, how will that impact his performance? Um, You know, I think they'd like to move off him if they could. Um, That may not be possible. Um, But um, I'm also a big fan of Jaden McDaniels. I know he's been a little bit up and down this year, but I think he is another important piece for them going forward with his size and length and ability to defend and stretch the four. Uh, He's got a, I mean, he fouls a little bit too much for my liking right now, but I think as he matures and grows, he'll be an important piece of their group going forward. Well, he's a massive for them of late. I I think back to the defense he played on Paul George in the playing game. Mm -hmm. Um, the shooting's been a bit erratic, but when he's on, he's provided. I mean, both him and Lee Beasley, when, when they're when they're connecting on jumpers, it's it takes yes. that team to a different level. Mm-hmm. Yes, Malik really turned it around. I mean, he was struggled earlier in the year, but um, he's been big for them as of late. To me, also, and I've been saying this to people behind the scenes for two years now. Anthony Edwards also kind of, I mean, it's it's obvious now what he's done in, in this postseason environment, but I mm-hmm. think a, traje- a trajectory for Minnesota where he is that alpha in the room, which, I mean, I used to think it was kind of corny before I really was covering the league about alpha dogs and pecking order and, and the offense and, uh, you know, who's going to be the loudest voice in the room and who's the leader and all that type of stuff. Like, that stuff does matter, I've come to learn. And and mm-hmm. it is a very integral fabric of a team's culture. And the fact that Edwards just exudes such confidence, but also with, like, a kind of humorous humility underscoring it all, that's a rare balance and a yes. rare blend for not just a 19-year-old, 20-year-old kid, but for someone who is yeah. that talented and has been told their whole life how talented they are, to be able to to have that again, like he says, ridiculous, obnoxiously <laughs> confident things, like saying he's the best defensive player in the NBA, but he does it in a way with a smile on his face that you can't just. You, you, it's kind of hard to not be, want to believe him and root for that, from my perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. adding that. Adding that guy, I think, ultimately just raises the ceiling for a franchise with Carl Anthony Towns to a degree of – I'm not comparing Anthony Edwards to LeBron by any stretch, but it really reminds me of how mm-hmm. AD Anthony Davis found far more success be, being like a 1B or a number 2 
with the Lakers rather than being the sole focal point yes. of the Pelicans. And I think I think yes. that, that and I you're think comparing that Davis. You're, you're comparing Davis to Cat. Yes, I, th- I think and that's that, the true missing scenario. piece to really building yeah. around Cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Cat's a great player. I think he struggled with the mantle uh, of leader um, for that team yes. when he was the best player, and I think in some ways. Um, it's really helped him to have Anthony Edwards because I think he is much more comfortable in that role. Um, still young, obviously in his second year, but um, in some ways I think um, they're an excellent pairing. Um, and as I said, I think that they've got uh, a chance to be good for a long time. I couldn't agree more. I think that could kind of blends it back to the expansion conversation about the talent level of the league right now. I just think you know, mm-hmm. they're in a fun two-seven series. Um, I mean, the Heat are up two-zero, but it's been kind of close with Atlanta. Um, the, the Celtics Nets are a yeah. different story with Brooklyn having injuries and whatnot as a seven seed. But then, and and the, and the Pelicans have provided a punch. I just think, I think this might yes. be the, the first year of a new era in the league where there's so much talent that the, the NBA playoffs could be getting to a, a, a situation like the NFL and the MLB and the NHL have where it doesn't really matter your seeding. You can kind of make a run here being that there's just – there is – I mean, guy, the fact that there are guys like Anthony Edwards in their second year in the league doing what he's doing. And, I mean, Donovan Mitchell mm-hmm. has been kind of the, 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 the lifeblood of Utah from his rookie year, right? Like there's all these guys, Scotty Barnes in Toronto, yeah. obviously he's hurt and the rappers aren't as successful as they – plan to be but you kind of get my point i i just i i, I do feel like we're i feel like we're at the precipice right now of a new era in the league where like we're, we're never going to see a Cavs warriors four years in a row finals again in, in my opinion i think that was i mean obviously it was a historical mm-hmm. anomaly then but to me i just feel like that that's we're going to be virtually impossible to occur moving forward here yes yes no and i mean these first round series have been uh, pretty exciting for the most part, and I think um, you know I haven't seen the ratings, uh, but I would assume that they've been pretty good. Yeah. Um, so you're now in the player representation space, which is also mm-hmm. completely different than it ever has been with all the NIL stuff at the college level. Mm-hmm. It used to be mm-hmm. the the the, dirt, the dirty game of the of the of the player represent representation world it used to be agents and runners following these guys from AAU days to steering them to the college that's going to potentially steer them to uh, or, or steering them to the college with this with the exact uh, apparel brand sponsorship endorsement that will all potentially steer them back to that agent when they turn pro. And now all this stuff's just above board. So mm-hmm. has it been, has it been wild to really return to that space in this time period of the industry? It has been wild. I mean, what I've seen since the college basketball has ended is schools putting together packages of NIL money to induce players in the portal to come and sign with them. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, we're talking about $500,000, a million dollars that players are getting in NIL money who are in the portal to transfer to other schools. Um, it's basically you know, free not agency. to mention the packages that um, it's basically free agency. Uh, I mean, the SEC, as you can imagine, is out in the front. I heard that Oscar Shibway got $2 million to return. I don't know if that number is correct, but a large amount of money to return Kentucky. I mean, if he's getting that much, you can understand why putting his name in the draft and going into the NBA might give him reason to pause. Um, and so um, it's become a bit of a free-for-all as schools struggle to to find out how much they have to, to pay guys to come and with the pressure to win play and with so many players putting themselves in, in the portal. Um, it's been very interesting and a lot of players are on the fence. Some of these players testing the waters are being aggressively recruited by schools. Um, and the schools are saying, Hey, look, you'll make more money coming back here and playing for our team 
than you'll make if you go through the draft and even you get drafted and you're in the second round, um, you know, and certainly if you don't get drafted or are compelled to sign a two-way. Um, I think it's yeah. going to impact overtime elite. I think it's going to impact Ignite. Um, and so the whole ecosystem of um, college basketball and amateurism and has is changing overnight. I mean, this is the first summer um, where this has happened. Um, and it's largely unregulated and very much a free-for-all. And with different states have different different regulations and you can mm-hmm. do certain things in some states that you can in others and certain conferences, obviously having a lot more latitude to pay more money. It's been, uh, it's been interesting to say the least. Yeah. That Oscar Toshiba number. I mean, I was told it was well over a million. So we're, we're okay. clearly somewhere in that, yeah. in that one to $2 million <laughs> ballpark. Yep. And, mm-hmm. and for him, I wrote about that at Bleach Report two, three weeks ago, a month ago, something like that. Okay. I, he, I did he, not he, see he that. Won the, I'll send you the link. <laughs> okay. Um, please, please do. It, it was at the time when he was still kind of considered to be considering his options, if you will. Um, and, I mean, look, Oscar Deshiba is a very talented player. He won player of the year. But at – a school like Kentucky with a rabid fan base like that in Lexington for someone who's probably going to be a late second round pick or an early second round pick at a best case scenario. Um, yeah. I mean, the two way, it's kind of, I mean, breaking down the numbers, like a two way deal is, is worth a little over one, right? Maybe less depending on mm-hmm. when no, it gets no. actually converted. No, two way deal, two way deal. no, Two-way deal, if you sign a two-way contract, it's half of the first year minimum. So it's a little over $500,000 last year. But I was going to say a lot of those guys do end up getting converted by season's end. So what is that number? End Someone end? like him, yeah. I know, yeah. So, yeah, then the rookie, so it's twice that, but prorated for whenever it gets converted. Mm-hmm. So somewhere between a million and 500000 gross, let's say. So, yeah, you can – and that's not to mention, you know – that that two million number that you get for coming, or that the number you five hundred thousand for transferring to, you know, let's say Arkansas or whatever the number is, and I'm, I'm again for the title of the show, I'm not saying Arkansas is offering five hundred thousand dollars. I'm just giving an example. Yeah, um, well, it's that's just a starting point. Arguably legal, starting so it's yeah, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. just a starting point, but and you could get more once you got there, and then. Most of these players have agents, too, who are out soliciting deals. So these, this is just what the school is offering them to come to their school. These players are also getting money from trading card companies and other sponsors that the agents who they can now sign with are soliciting. So if that's your starting point, yes, you're likely to get more than that. It's pretty wild. I mean, it's, it's all – I mean, I'm, I'm a general fan of the institution being that for years, I mean, players ha- should have been able to, have, in my opinion, should have been able to have grossed this type of income for definitely their name, image, and likeness. I, I, I have always been on the staunch side of the argument being that schools actually paying them as employees, it just, it would get too wonky. Cause how are you going to, I mean, if, if you look at Kentucky, you know, the seventh man on Kentucky in most years isn't really worth that much to the school in terms of actual revenue generation. No. But the top players, the top players surely do. And to create some type of salary cap or what have you, it's just, it would be a mess. This is the only way I think that it's actually feasible, being that it's a free market and you're, you are able to just negotiate what, what you are able to negotiate. I, I, I think... Maybe that's too capitalistic of a, of a mindset to have, but um, I think it's honestly benefiting the players more than if the schools were locked into a certain number of salary or what have you. Because I would I would imagine just like mm-hmm. pro sports, that would have to become public at some point. The fact that this stuff can be yes. under the table and kind of gray it makes it all better for everyone involved. Is uh, and and I don't know this rule, but does the NCA or, or anyone else require these schools to report? whatever funds they give to athletes under the guise of NIL or is it, is it not reported 
and for public institutions, do they have to reveal it? I, I, I certainly haven't seen I it. Don't, it's all been sort of anecdotal yeah. at this point, but um, it's very much a free-for-all. And as I said, dealing with some players who are testing the waters, um, I know that they are being approached by multiple institutions who are putting together packages to induce them to return to school, which is funny because yeah, it was I don't believe agents or others inducing players yeah. not to go back to school. Yeah, it's pretty crazy how it's all flipped on its head. I, I don't believe they have to make it public, being that the schools technically are not paying them. They're these collectives, right, where it's affiliated yeah. with the yeah. athletic program or what have you, but they're not actually entities. Uh, like That was the most fascinating wrinkle of the Christian Dawkins, James Gatto, Adidas um, case, being that the mm-hmm. the uh, I, I guess it was the United States because it was a federal law, a federal case that they were being charged with defrauding the institutions by making players ineligible to play under NCAA standards by their activity and then putting the schools at risk. Blah blah blah. So reverse engineering <laughs> it, the schools aren't doing anything, right? They're not the ones. It's these collectives. It's the car dealership down the street and some booster and this mm-hmm. guy and that wealthy lady and blah, blah, blah that come together to say, and they're basically just raising money like Series A, Series B funding for a startup and putting it in some collective bank. And then that advisory board of the collective is then deciding how much that money gets uh, disseminated to, to each player. It's pretty wild. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I've heard of families being provided with aircrafts to attend games and obviously players getting cars and other things. It's just, um, it's a very interesting world we're living in. Um, all right. Now we're almost at the top of the hour here. And this is typically when I offer the guest the opportunity. I've asked you a bunch of questions so far, I don't, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I do mean to put you on the spot. If you have any, that okay. in mind. Do you have any questions? Do you have yep. any questions for me? Any questions for you? Yeah, I have a question for you. I want you to talk a little bit about the state of sports journalism today. I mean, it's something that you and I have talked yeah. about offline before, but I'm always intrigued. I mean, having been in the NBA for 25 years or something like that. Um, I'm amazed at how I always tell people when I started at the NBA, obviously pre-social media, we used to get a stack of clips each morning where interns were cutting out articles from newspapers and Mm -hmm. putting them on our desk. And that's how we found out what was going on in the NBA. And then Hoops Hype came out and then we had reporters going on, uh, tweeting out items on Twitter about signings and other things. And, um, you know, obviously the ability to write has been diminished and it's really who can um, report the quickest. Um, and I think often it isn't done with the care or attention that it should be given. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think it's transformed sports journalism perhaps forever, but I'm interested to hear what you think about that since you're in that space. Yeah, I mean, we had a long talk about this with Ethan Strauss on Tuesday's show. Um, okay, from from the lane from the lane of how I've pivoted into this breaking news world um, from more of the feature writing stuff that I used to do, and I mean, my approach is definitely what you said you know, to be as careful as possible to turn over every stone that you can before, you know, and having something solid and confirmed before bringing it forward. Um, but I mean, I do, to me, the biggest, and, and it goes back to the title of the show, to me, the biggest issue in the sports journalism industry, let alone journalism at large, is the is the aggregation aspect of it being that not just for the veracity of information being disseminated by all these accounts that take, you know, 140 characters out of a 1500 word story and tweet it out. Mm -hmm. And then it gets thousands of retweets and that's the only thing people see. Um, But also it's allowed companies to, to lay off reporters in mass and to, and to, I mean, I, 
my writing home is Bleach Report right now, right? And obviously there, as, as you know, the word that comes to mind is as guilty as any of just re- repurposing the reporting of other outlets and other people, slapping a headline on it, putting a little bit of a context and calling it an original piece. And then that generates all the revenue that they need without having to even employ the reporter who created that content to begin with. So I do think it's a curious, uh, honestly sad state of where we are as, as, as an overall industry. Um, but Mm -hmm. I do think that there are ways to navigate it and do good quality work being that, especially the information economy, it's, it's shifted so much into, uh, an image based how, I mean, the fact that, we had so many players that we talked about. We put, talked to us on Tuesday. The fact that we had so many players this year doing the whole media tour, I want to be defensive player of the year, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I was even thinking about it today. Mm-hmm. The, the way that these players are putting their name on on coming and uh, um, entering the NBA draft by going to reporters and saying, you know, quote, unquote, tell, or Chet Holmgren tells ESPN – that he's entering the draft and kind of doing like a, I mean, that is public relations. It really is. Um, So I I think there is still because of that and the way that everyone is shifted to just trying to be quick and be fast or whatever. If, if an employer is willing to pay for it, I do think that it leaves avenues to go do and explore deeper stories that are being missed while that constant churn is happening, but there just isn't sure. that much money out there to support that journalism from happening, unfortunately. No, because Adam Schefter and Agent Wojnarowski are getting all the money. <laughs> you can say that. <laughs> but, I mean, I hope that the advent of Substack and other things will continue to balance that. Um, I'm, and the other thing is just I am I am very curious to see how the betting and gambling side of things impacts everything. Being that sure. it seems like all the DraftKings and the FanDuel's of the world are adding their own original content uh, branches of their business. They're not just sport books now. They have added, um, you know, experts and pick people and blah blah blah. And I do wonder if we're going to end up seeing a blending of that where you go to the same website that you gamble to read about your sports news. And I wonder if that will be either ethically uh, challenging or it just is a seamless transition. And if it puts out further uh, uh, businesses or platforms on, on the traditional media side of things out of business, like I am curious to see what the ripple effects of that are too. Mm Mm-hmm. That's fair. Yeah. That is fair. Um, uh, All right, sir. Yeah. All right. Well, well, no, thank you very thank much. Thank you guys I for hopping on here, man. I really appreciate it. Um, Great chatting as soon. always. Yeah. Let's definitely catch up soon, not in public. And uh, I look forward to hopefully seeing you down the road at Combine or Summer League and all that type of good stuff. Sounds great. Thanks, Jake. All right. Thanks, everyone, Take for care. tuning in. We'll be back. Uh, on Tuesday, not sure of the time or the uh, of the guest yet. Um, but if you like today's show, please subscribe to. Please don't aggregate this. We're gonna have a ton of more NBA content coming up, and definitely really gearing up with the draft and the off season. We're gonna have a lot of info breaking down what's happening behind the scenes around the league. Uh, so thanks for tuning in today. Hope to have you next time, and have a good weekend.